We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Thursday night, December 21st, 2023, as we record a new show. I've got a feeling that big Major League Baseball free agent news is incoming as Yoshinobu Yamamoto is narrowing his final list down as multiple reports have the San Francisco Giants out of the race, leaving the Dodgers, the Philadelphia Phillies a late entry, but they have submitted an official offer, and the New York teams, the Yankees and the Mets. While we wait for that big news to drop, Major League Baseball has some rule changes that we'll discuss and Baseball Prospectus released their Pocota projections for the 2024 season. Some positive surprises in the projections for the Chicago White Sox, and many not-so-rosy projections for individual players. So let's get started. Joining is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis, and hello, Jim. Even though it seems there is labor peace between the league and the Players Association, I love when some Rule changes shows that there's still some pretty contentious divide between the teams and players as the Players Association unanimously turned down the new rules. But there are more MLB teams participating in the voting than player reps, and thus new rules are coming in 2024. Yeah, that's how I took it when I saw that the league imposed these changes, most of which seem fairly mild or like unlikely to make any kind of measurable impact the way the other ones did. And, you know, the, to to have the players not go along with it and have some, you know, if not justifiable concerns, think that the bulk had been done already to affect the way they go about their business and nothing more need to be changed at this time, given the success of the rule changes from last year to go ahead and do it over the players makes me think like, yeah, they, you know, the league maybe wants to show who's the boss right now, especially since, you know, should the uh, prevailing concerns between big and small markets, between like whether it's the deferred money of the Shohei Otani contract, whether it's the uh, regional sports network uncertainty between big and small markets, like there could be a lot of tension among owners. So maybe the league sees that it's maybe a little bit 
advantageous to make the players squirm a little bit just to try to you know show some kind of united front on that regard but yeah otherwise i feel like these rule changes are mostly inconsequential except for one yeah we're going to go through the new rule changes in a moment here but i just want to read this statement from the executive director of the major league baseball players association tony clark after the rule changes were announced he released this statement through the official Twitter account for the Players Association. Quote, This afternoon, player representatives voted against the 2024 rule changes proposed by the commissioner's office. As they made clear in the competition committee, players strongly feel that following last year's profound changes to the fundamental rules of the game, immediate additional changes are unnecessary and offer no meaningful benefits to fans, players, or the competition on the field. This season should be used to gather additional data and fully examine the health, safety, and injury impacts of reduced recovery time. That is where our focus will be, end quote. So that's the Players Association perspective. So what are these new rule changes? Well, let's visit the pitch clock again. So if you recall, with no runners on, pitches, uh, the seconds between pitches was about 20 seconds. Now that's going to be down to 18 seconds. So they're taking two seconds off the pitch clock. There's going to be a runner's lane. So the first baseline is going to be six inches wider on the field. And the purpose, according to Jason Stark of The Athletic, as he wrote, runners could take a more direct route from home to first without being called for interference. I know there is some... I don't know if you want to say dramatic calls, but especially if a bunter lays a bunt in front of home plate as they're getting is right-handed batters, especially Jim from that right-handed batters box. They're like running in the grass. Jose Abreu, when he was with the White Sox was notorious for this, right? The, the infield roller in front of the catcher and Abreu seems like he's closer to the mound than to first base, taking that angle to cut off a throwing lane from the catcher. Because they're making it wider, runners are supposed to take a more direct to, to first base. That one I'm curious about, and one that I don't know if it's still going to be reviewable because I don't think it's reviewable now, is it? It's not reviewable. Okay. So let's see on how this new runner's lane looks. But when you get to the ballpark in 2024, you may notice, wow, the base path to first base is wider than it is from third to home, and now you know why. Uh, mound visits teams had five mound visits. That's going to be cut down to four major league baseball teams last year. According to the league's office, teams only used four or more mound visits in 2% of the regular games last year. So to Jim's point, not a big dramatic effect relievers. They only have two minutes to warm up when they're entering the game instead of the two minutes and 15 seconds they had last year. This one, I'm curious about, and unfortunately, Max Scherzer is hurt as he has a herniated disc and he's going to miss, it sounds like, the first half of the 2024 season. But after a foul ball, the pitch clock is going to start when the pitcher has the ball and the fielders are back in position. This is different from last year when the pitch clock started when pitchers were on the mound. And thus, if the pitcher wasn't on the mound, they could stall a little bit to collect themselves. But instead, Jim, the pitch clock's going to start when they receive the ball. And I think that could create some violations, at least early in the season. Well, I wonder if it'll just train outfielders and infielders to take longer to get back into position. 
like tie a shoe or something like that or take indirect lines get back just in order to allow the pitcher to have more time like I guess it depends on the comfort of the pitcher but you know I'd have to see if there's anything in the language of the rules that like could punish a a player for like a delay of game type thing or issue a ball or something like that if a center fielder is taking too long to get back in position after helping back up a drive down the left field line that bounces foul that that's what I'm curious about when I saw that that seemed like to obvious loophole and usually if the loopholes are that obvious there's something in there to say like yeah we thought about this but as the rule is described by Jason Stark so far uh, I haven't seen that particular item of information yet wouldn't Elvis Andrews do that though wouldn't he go like get the rosin bag and try to dry off like his throwing hand just to buy time for the pitcher yeah it was like a mound visit but not a mound visit just yeah like a catcher <laughs> couldn't come out and do it uh even if it was like kind of a situation where the catcher would have had nothing to say it's more a matter of just hey take time to reset and like you know andrews would go to the mound and just juggle the rosin bag and say well he's hand need the rosin bag and not you know make any contact with Kopech, but still like accomplish the same purpose of like saying hey calm down up there And then the last one, any pitcher who warms up at the start of an inning will now be required to face at least one hitter. So 24 times during the regular season and the postseason last year, twice in the World Series, a pitcher warmed up between innings but departed without facing a hitter in that inning because as the opposing team announced a pinch hitter, that gave the other team an opportunity to replace that pitcher before even having to face a minimum of three batters. So that's where I, I don't recall seeing that during white Sox games and think of all of the pitches and all of the innings and all the events that happen in the regular season and postseason. This occurrence only happened 24 times last year. So again, back to Jim's point, It's very mild rule changes here, just small tweaks, trying to maybe close some loopholes here within the game before teams really take advantage and it becomes a bigger thing. But out of all these like rule changes, like the runner's lane will be a little bit different. And yeah, we'll we'll see if losing two seconds on the pitch clock impacts pitchers, Jim. We think it may have last year with Dylan Cease not being able to take his time to load up and max out on his velocity. But the Players Association taking, <laughs> drawing a hard line in the sand, <laughs> I think just continues to speak that, yeah, the league and the Players Association still not on great terms. The one I'm curious about is, well, I mean, there are a couple I'm curious about. One is the runner's lane. Just I want to see that in action just because, you know, you can make the runner lane runner's lane wider, but you know, there's a problem with the geometry of the game in which first base is in fair territory, but hitters can't be in fair territory while running until they step on the base. So I'm curious, like if, if that means like the dirt, if you're on the dirt, that means you are in safe territory. Like, whereas if you get one, uh, you know, one foot on the turf while you're running and the right foot's in the runner's lane, that's maybe when you're out. So like if it's a symmetrical six inches where it's like three inches on each side and the runner's lane is considered fair, no matter what, then I can understand like, okay, that's better than it was. Whereas if it's still the same thing where the runner's lane is wider, but it's still on foul territory, or most of it's still tilted towards foul territory and the hitters have to stay on that side until like their last step. That's, I think you still have the same inclination to try to cut off the angle of the catcher making the throw. So I want to see that one in play. Mountain visits, like I don't, you know, 
one, I didn't think it was that big of a deal in terms of like, you know, most teams didn't run into five mound visits, but also like I, as a fan, as a viewer, I don't know if I want to see more pitch clock situations decided, you know, you know, potentially deciding games. And, and like, you know, if you have a catcher occasionally calling for time because, uh, you know, pitcher doesn't realize where he is in the clock. Like I know that Reynaldo Lopez that happened to him a few times and in both Yasmani Grandal and Sebi Zavala had to put up their arms and go out there and burn a mound visit just because like he lost track of time. And ultimately like, yeah, it's a little bit like un graceful or yeah just like a little bit of an interruption and seems like unnatural to the flow of the game but it was only like one instance over nine innings where is actually the pitch clock forcing it and i'd rather see like the normal act of a mountain visit versus like the still unnatural act of having an artificial ball called because a pitcher ran out of time so that's i think where i think it's a little bit counterproductive t- towards the flow of the game by like inserting artificial balls and even maybe artificial strikes, depending on like how this works out and whether like there's any kind of additional crackdown and hitters uh, where, you know, you're having more of those called because you do remove one mound visit. Or as we saw with the rule changes, like players continue to adjust quickly and we don't even notice it. So I think it can be overblown on both sides, but I do think it leans towards being unnecessary because uh, you're talking about like two seconds uh, over the course of each pitch when they already lopped off like five plus seconds last time around and got, you know, they eliminated the three and a half hour game. Like the games that went beyond three and a half they hours did. for nine innings. That was the, I think that was the target for what they just wanted to get rid of. And they were wildly successful in doing that. So now it seems like just um, gilding the lily a little bit uh, with just trying to shave off additional seconds where fans won't really notice anymore. Yeah. According to Jason Sark's article, MLB league sources, like their goal is to shave another five minutes off the average game time. So the average game time in the second half of the season was two hours and 44 minutes. So it appears that Major League Baseball has a campaign to continue to make rule adjustments without eating into precious, precious commercial television time to get the game as close to two and a half hours as possible. I don't blame them. That kind of is more in line with like the NBA. It's, I mean, NFL and college football games are three plus hours and no one's really complaining uh, as far as the time of the game, it, it, all the problems were like the lack of inaction, right? <laughs> With Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. And I get like, according to their survey, like mound visits is one of the things that fans absolutely do not like seeing at all. It's great, though. I'm curious how that survey question was like, do you get fired up about mound visits? <laughs> right. Which nobody does. <laughs> like at best, they're starting at like a two out of five. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, but at least when you're at the stadium, though, that's a time to go to the bathroom, time to get a beer. It's a great time for TV to do more commercials and more ads. So I think mound visits are still needed. That's the one that I'm curious to see and how it's going to work, especially for the White Sox with so much instability that they have with their pitching staff coming into the season. Maybe they don't need five. But I can see a lot of games where they're going to use all four, Jim, <laughs> just to get out of situations or just to give guys breathers. So, again, not huge rule changes like we saw last year. 
Small tweaks, but now you know what the tweaks are, and uh, I can't wait to see what that new first baseline looks like. I will tell you, Jim, on the college baseball side, everyone is begging for the first baseline to be widened. Because to your point, and I think you you make a good observation here, if it is uniform, three inches inside, three inches outside of the foul line, then I think it's very clear for base runners, especially right-headed hitters, if you are touching the grass inside the foul line, you're going to be out no matter what. Outside doesn't matter, right? You can be as far wide as you want. And I guess like for a lot of people in college baseball, this is really needed because I guess there were some really controversial calls, especially at first base on close plays where base runners are getting hit by the throw from catchers and third baseman to first base. And it is pretty clear they're way inside the foul line, uh, but interference is not called. So uh, now I'm curious to see on how this goes for Major League Baseball and if we get into any instances where guys are automatically called out. Zach Remillard, that's the guy I'm paying attention to with this rule. He loves to bunt. But those those are yep. the new MLB rule changes, so let's shift gears and let's talk about some projections. It is projection season. We still haven't gotten the Zips projections from Fancrafts and our best friend Dan Zaborski yet. But over at Baseball Prospectus, they have released their Pagoda projections. And Jim wrote about the position battle ones on SoxMachine.com. I highly recommend checking that article out as he highlights some of the differences as well, like what the catching situation looks like using Yasmani Grandal's projection, what the middle infield looks like using Tim Anderson and Elvis Andrews' projections compared to Paul Dion and Nicky Lopez. But where I want to start on the position player side is looking at the 50th percentile projection and a lot of projection talk here, folks, for the rest of the show. What I like about Picota Jim is that when you download the spreadsheet, they give you one to 99%. So we can build a range. I think everyone can have a debate on how wards calculated between the different sites how runs created plus is calculated between the different sites. But when it comes to Dakota, this is what I like most about them is that we have this spreadsheet. We can look at the range. They did a thousand season simulations. And this is where based on that bell curve, where most of the performances of individuals line up and on the 50th percentile. So the most common Luis Robert jr. 3.3 war he would be the 40th ranked Major League Baseball position player coming to 2024 if he hits that 50th percentile projection. And Picot is projecting his 50th percentile, another 30 home run season from Luis Robert with 87 RBIs. And that seems pretty on par with what we saw last year, Jim. And that is a bit heartwarming that the computers agree, yes, this is a level performance we saw in 2023 Luis Robert can keep that up. It's really important to like where the White Sox are going from here on out if they don't choose to trade him with the next couple of years. I think when it comes to Robert, there's a lot of, there's a popular movement to trade him now because what are the chances that the White Sox are good enough uh, if they can only trade Dylan Cease and the rest they're counting on internal development and uh, canny free agent signings in order to you know get uh, to where they need to go by the time Robert becomes more expensive and closer to free agency. And I get it, but 
also like to me, if he's got four years of team control left, I, I think there becomes a point where like you can only be traded for so much and teams are only willing to give up like a maximum prospect package in order to get somebody back. Because after that becomes diminishing returns, like if I give up five good players for one, even I have them for four years, I still need those four roster spots or those four potential roster spots uh, accounted for. So no matter how much team control he has and how good the contract is, uh, there's still like a point where there's just more damage being done by the amount you're moving rather than the amount you're uh, bringing in. So I think like for Robert, that sweet spot's probably like two years to two and a half years of team control uh, when it comes to trading him and getting the same amount of return back. So I haven't seen that right now to where like, especially since like this was his first full healthy season, I think he can still probably bolster his trade value by having two of those because like if he gets hurt again and teams might be saying like, yeah, let's see him do it again. Yeah. I don't trust his health and or plate discipline to be like an outstanding contributor for 110 games. Like he needs to play 140 to provide the value he did last year. Uh, he just doesn't have that high of a, a floor of talent or like a week to week production because of the way his play discipline can erode on him for a, a series at a time. So that's why I think like not a big fan of moving him. So for the time being in order for him to, um, you know, kind of plant his flag, both for what he means for the white Sox and what he could mean for other teams. Like it's very important for him to have those kind of seasons, even if it is mostly in vain from a, team record perspective, which, you know, I, I think a lot of people say like, well, if he has like a four and a half win season and the White Sox only win 65 games, what good does it do? And it's like, well, it keeps his trade value the same uh, or even, you know, enhances it. And then you understand like how much, uh, you know, how close are we? I think like next year, as we talked about, like what constitutes success for Chris Getz, my bar is at the end of 2024, will he have a clear path for like how this team is going to be good by like 2025, 2026? And if he doesn't have the answer, then maybe you think about trading Luis Robert because like you really got to have a plan for how to maximize the last couple of years of his contract. But if there is a path, like if Colson Montgomery somehow, you know, second half of the season looks every bit like a top 20 prospect and Brian Ramos looks like a good offensive contributor and uh, the rotation looks a lot more sound than it did. Like then maybe you can say like, yeah, Robert's a guy to still build around because we have that. So uh, in the meantime, he just needs to keep doing what he's doing. And it's good to see that at least, uh, given his unusual shapes of production at times, that they think the fundamentals are good. Yeah, Dakota's range for Luis Robert, 1% performance for a full season of Luis Robert, 140-plus games. So the very worst out of all the 1,000 simulations, Robert was a 0.9 war player. His very best was 7 war which is top five out of position players of Major League Baseball, which puts him again where we think Luis Roberts' ceiling is a legit American League MVP candidate. And I guess that's a silver lining with Shohei Otani switching leagues and not knowing if you can trust Mike Trout to play 140-plus games. We know how great Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon are for the Texas Rangers. But if Luis Robert puts up a seven-war season, he's going to be part of the conversation even if the White Sox are bad, uh, especially for the MVP voters that rely more on stats than narrative when voting. Uh, so Luis Robert, huge, huge range, but very, very high ceiling based on these projections from Dakota. That's how I'm looking at it. 
I don't want to be pessimistic, but Bakoda is more optimistic about the next two players we're going to talk about on the position player side. And that's Andrew Benatendi and Eloy Jimenez. So the projection for Benatendi from Bakoda, his 50th percentile, most common, a 2.7 war season, way better than last year. That would put Benatendi as the 65th ranked position player in the league with 11 home runs and 63 RBIs. And Eloy, a two and a half war player, which would put him as the 75th ranked position player in Major League Baseball with 24 homers and 79 RBIs. And Jim, maybe I could see a path for Ben Attendee to be a top 75 player in Major League Baseball, but that requires him to do a complete 180 defensively where he goes from, what was he, negative 11 defensive runs saved in left field to zero <laughs> to be mm-hmm. league average in left field. And to ha- I think in order for him to be a top 75 position player, his OPS has got to be above 750 in order for him to do that. And we'll see. I- I'm, I'm just not, I don't know. Last year really hit me as far as being optimistic with Ben Attendee. I thought he had a shot at hitting 15, 20 homers with the White Sox last year. Didn't come anywhere close to that. Eloy, in order for him to be a two and a half war player, if he's not going to be playing in the field all the time, uh, he's going to need to hit. And I don't know if 24 homers and 79 RBIs is good enough to be a two and a half war player. But if he can play 140 plus games, which he hasn't since 2019, there's still a part of me that believes he could hit 30 homers despite that horrendous ground ball rate. So again, I don't mean to be pessimistic, Jim, mm-hmm. but I disagree with Bakota here. Like if this is the 50th percentile projection for Ben Attendee and Jimenez, oh, you know what? That's great. That's better than I was expecting for these two. And maybe that's the silver lining. Maybe Ben Attendee and Jimenez are going to bounce back in 2024. Ben Benintendi will find out how much the wrist was bothering him, how much you know, coming back from that Hammett injury he had that ended his 2022 season. Like, it could be a classic case of the White Sox just overestimating their ability to uh, help a guy get past uh, an injury that ended a season and you know could very well carry over. We saw it with Joe Kelly, saw it with Kelvin Herrera, saw it with uh, Jeff Kepinger going way back with his off-season shoulder injury at the White Sox. We're like, yeah, he's. He'll be fine. We'll we'll get him back on track. And, you know, all of those never really happened. Probably Kelly came the closest, but he always had like a different injury that kind of popped up here and there that uh, held him back, even with the Dodgers. Like he had a nice uh, two months with the Dodgers, but he did lose like four weeks to an injury, like uh, along those lines to where just, you know, he the availability still wasn't what the White Sox needed to have him be, you know, what worth his contract, deliver on that contract. So that's why like with Benintendi, you know, I'm inclined to write off the lack of power, the lack of impact, and also like just um, showing up to a team that's a mess. Like the whole thing around Benintendi being like the franchise's biggest contract, and even he seemed a little bit embarrassed by that when he was asked about it during his introduction, saying like, yeah, that's I, I did not know that, and you know, that's not really what I'm about. And uh, he's probably thinking like, I'm not supposed to be the biggest contract. Like a biggest contract in a team history is supposed to sell jerseys, and I don't know if he sold a single one. Did you, did you see a Benintendi jersey at Guaranteed Rate Field? Very few. Maybe, yeah. maybe 10 times. Yeah. Maybe. And that probably was the same fan, like four or five out of that. Yeah. 10 times. So it's, 
you know, I think there's a ceiling of what he can do. Um, that's why, like, it's hard to be, like, super optimistic about him. But when you look at last year's numbers, that basically meets his 15th percentile projection this time around. So there does seem to be some idea that, like, he's still too young to have fallen off that badly. And he should go back to being an acceptable outfielder. Like you said, like, a lot of it will come down to, like, what kind of outfielder he is because even that has... Uh, fluctuated wildly between being an above average one and like a surprisingly below average one. Usually the below average seasons coincided with him playing some center field, which he hadn't done at all with the White Sox. He's left field only. But yeah, if the defense doesn't improve and he's not hitting 10 homers or he's struggling to get 10 homers, it's hard to see him being anything more than like two wins or average, which is not what you want for somebody you're paying into his like mid thirties and really won't have any trade value because as we saw with like Lourdes Gurriel signing with the re-signing with the Diamondbacks, like that's kind of what like an average outfielder gets and, and what he should be expected to get. And, you know, the kind of defense that outfielder should be expected to contribute for that kind of money. And then the next two meet my expectations when it comes to projections for the 50th percentile, Andrew Vaughn, 1.7 war, 22 homers, 76 RBIs and OPS at 737. Yoan Makata, a 1.6 war projection, 17 homers, 66 RBIs, he's 709 OPS for 2024. Most common. And with Vaughn and Makata being on the corners, like at least with Makata defensively, there is a chance for him to exceed that 1.6 war if he can play 140 plus games and maintain a good level of defense which we know that he can, Andrew Vaughn's going to have to hit in order to be a, a 1.7 war player. And what's fascinating is that like fan graphs and baseball reference do not show a lot of love to Andrew Vaughn, but baseball prospectus last year, their metrics thought Andrew Vaughn was a two war player. And they thought Luis Robert was a three war player. I really don't want to get into that debate on how that was calculated. Mm -hmm. Baseball Prospectus likes Andrew Vaughn a lot more than Fangraphs, Baseball Reference, and I would even say Baseball Savant likes Andrew Vaughn. But I, I, I'm sorry. Going into your fourth season, I need more from Andrew Vaughn. Like, the White Sox need more from Andrew Vaughn than this projection. Like, if he hits this number of 22 homers and 76 RBIs and plays 150 games, like, I'm sorry, that's just not good enough for an everyday first baseman especially a Gary T. Ray field and Yohan Mikata again is getting paid $24 million and 24 million for a 1.6 war season. I know we talked about this in our previous episode and I still haven't made up my mind. So we're not having that conversation right now, Jim, but mm -hmm. this is where I circle and be like, yeah, maybe it is Vaughn and Mikata that decides if the white Sox can surprise us at the beginning of the season. And Pakoda's, projecting more of the same for both of them. I think Moncada, it's pretty simple. And I don't think you need like um, projection systems to really account for it. Like if he's a hundred percent, he's good. If he's even like 90%, he's way off, especially like if it has to do with his legs, like just any kind of impact with his athleticism, his ability to turn on ball. Like, yeah, it's been legs and oblique and everything like that. And just, you know, it becomes pretty clear when he has it, when he doesn't. And it's hard to kind of split the difference with a projection and say like, well, he might have it half the time because, you know, as we've seen, like it tends to be like a 
pervasive thing or it's like good weeks and you know one good week and four bad weeks or just he disappears so that's why like his projections strike me as like i kind of rather see like how many yeah pakota can't do this but i'd like to see a projection of like how many weeks does he actually have like his full physical capabilities and that'll kind of tell me like how good he is versus trying to like put a number on his entire season stats so like to me it's more of an art than a science when it comes to assessing mancata Vaughn, yeah, I mean, like, it feels like we've been having this conversation for a while because, like, it is a, he has drawn attention for, like, the fact that, like, he's been listed as an untouchable or somebody the White Sox aren't willing to trade and just like, well, if he's, they're unwilling to trade him, maybe it's just because they're not receiving compelling offers, you know, and they're better off keeping him because they don't have anybody better to take the playing time. But the thing that I think saddens me most about the Vaughn projection is 42 walks, over 569 plate appearances like and that's in line with what he drew last year and like that's a number that you backed up on him like he made some progress in other regards over the course of the season like his he was more durable or he kept a stamina later into the season had more end of year production there were some things to like but ultimately like walks just he went you know especially second half like he went uh, long stretches of time without drawing walks and that's not really supposed to be what he does and James Fegan has talked about this uh saying that when it comes to Vaughn like it seems like his entire value proposition hinges on whether he can avoid bad swing decisions or suboptimal swing decisions on pitches on the corners um because he has pretty good like ball strike discerning abilities you know better than a lot of other players in the team like clear balls clear strikes you don't see like the ugly chases that you see from other players as often but you do see like the um you know the maybe unnecessary ground out on a 1-1 count because he swung at a pitcher's pitch or you know popped one up because he chased a fastball that was maybe a touch high or maybe like you know again perfectly located to where like it's going to be hard for him to damage that if he's looking for something else. So, you know, it's a very fine point, And I think a lot of hitters struggle to capitalize on that, but you hope at some point that his uh, top five draft status, best hitter in the class uh, draft status uh, eventually kicks in despite everything. The white Sox have maybe done wrong to his development over the course of his first several years in professional baseball, uh, to where eventually he finds that because he was supposed to have that all along. The White Sox, the positive, they have three position players projected to be top 100 position players in Major League Baseball. Again, that's Robert, Benatendi, and Jimenez. Uh, for other teams, the Dodgers lead as far as the top 100 position players. They have eight <laughs> players in the top 100. The Braves have six. The Rangers, Rays, Mets, Cardinals, Orioles, and Minnesota Twins have five position players in the top 100. So, again, the, the positive, the White Sox have three. It's Robert, Benatendi, and Jimenez, and maybe Benatendi and Jimenez take a step forward and they bounce back. But it's pretty clear after a 1,000 simulations, like even the computers are pretty sold on what Andrew Vaughn and Yohan Makata are at this point. And they're not top 100 position players. And if the White Sox are going to surprise at all in 2024, those two, along with Ben Attendee Jimenez bouncing back, all four of these guys have to pick up their production 
in order to help out Luis Robert, in which the computers are believers now in Luis Robert, which is nice to see. Jim and I are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the pitchers and another pleasant surprise, maybe a bit on the shocking side. And perhaps the computers are thinking this might be low-key, one of the best free agent signings this offseason, next on the Sox Machine Podcast. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. So how do you feel about the Eric Fetty free agent signing by the White Sox? I mean, it's low risk, right? Two years, $15 million guaranteed for a starting pitcher who was the MVP in the Korean Baseball League. And he added a sweeper and made some adjustments in the pitching lab that Brian Bannister really liked and worked with Eat the Cats on. And he's added to the rotation for the White Sox. And now, using Pakoda's projections, Pakoda is projecting Jim 50th percentile projection for Eric Fetty two-war season. Top 50 starting pitcher in Major League Baseball. Actually, I should just say top 50 pitcher, period, when you include relievers. In Major League Baseball, if Eric Fetty hits that, as you wrote on SoxMachine.com, White Sox fans have to be pleasantly surprised because for two years, $15 million, to get a top 50 pitcher in the league, that's a steal. Yeah, I don't know exactly what to do with that projection, and I'm not sure that you know when it comes to KBO stats and how many pitchers have 
made the transition year yeah like there isn't that like robust of a sample to kind of understand like a pitcher who was as successful as Fetty in the KBO after being pretty much replacement level or close to it with the Nationals like had some moments had some moments where he looked like he should be in triple a uh over the course of his career with Washington uh you know, his stateside career says one thing, his KBO career being the MVP of the league says another, because like we saw Mike Wright, uh, if you remember him, uh, listeners, uh, you know, he will soon, I think, be lost to the uh, sands of time when it comes to the memory. Uh, but, you know, he went to the KBO, but that was during the pandemic year. And that was during the, you know, whole bunch of uncertainty for fringe guys and the KBO is playing and major league baseball, uh, well, at least the minor leagues were not. So for players like him who are going to be spending the bulk of the year in AAA, like the KBO presented a better opportunity and he did okay there, but not like Fetty level. Great. And he comes back to the you know, state side and he's okay in AAA, good enough to get some run with the White Sox, but ultimately looks like that kind of quadruple A pitcher or maybe triple A pitcher replacement level who uh, kind of embodies that concept and goes up and down based on need. So that's, I think why, it feels like a little bit like the White Sox gamed the numbers a little bit by signing, like take a shortcut and sign a guy who puts spectacular numbers up in the equivalent of what might be double A, whereas I think you know other pitchers wouldn't get that kind of break. But I am open to the idea that Fetty can have that kind of season because I think the projections are, when it comes to like uh, baseball prospectus, uh, wins above replacement. I think they tend to be more conservative on the pitcher side. Like it's hard to find many pitchers who like clear two wins in a season uh, with a, a lot of room to spare. So that's why like even like Wild feels like, oh, two wins, that's like uh, shrug your shoulders, uh, you know, like Miguel Gonzalez or something like that. Like some pitcher who kind of came and went and was okay. Um, you know, like he's not somebody who's like, you know, you don't expect that guy to be considered a top 50 pitcher, but the good news is he's always had durability on his side, which I think also helps. Uh, and if there is anything to this KBO transformation, then he should be somebody who's been healthy enough and durable enough and, and has accrued enough starts over his career, both here and uh, overseas to where like that does feel like his floor is going to be high, even if it's not maybe like, uh, in ERA, like it's projecting him for a 3.29 ERA. Even if it's like ERA is four, he should throw enough innings to where like a four ERA is valuable enough for a team with the ambitions the White Sox have, which are basically like trying to get games over with as quickly as possible. Yeah, Fetty actually slightly ahead of Dylan Cease. Cease's projection in 2024 is 50th percentile projection is 1.9 war. So the White Sox have two top 50 pitchers right now. And I don't know if I would use the Pakota projections in order to trade Dylan Cease and sell other teams to give me more prospects. I'd rather use like Bancrafts or other projection models to suggest that Dylan Cease is going to be better than 1.9 war for his 50th percentile projection. The top pitcher for the 50th percentile projection for Pakota is Garrett Cole, and he was at 3.8 with his 50th yeah. percentile projection. And what did he do last year with, uh, well, I guess, so let me look it up on baseball perspective since get an idea of like what the concept is between that and uh, like fan graphs and baseball reference. Yeah, it is much lower, like to your point. Uh, Logan Webb led the league with 5.5. Garrett Cole was 3.8 last year. 
Whereas the in the baseball reference, he was so, 7.4. Big difference. There is a conversation to be had. I'm just not at a mental state to have that conversation or argument on how the different sites are calculating war. But comparatively speaking, using these projections, Fetty and Cease are top 50 pitchers. So on paper here, if the White Sox don't trade Dylan Cease, maybe they have a better one-two punch than we were expecting. Like when the White Sox signed Eric Fetty, I just thought this was a cheap way to get some innings. But, you know, I not that we should eat crow, but Mike Clevenger pitched better than I expected him to pitch last year for the White Sox. And he put up a two-plus war season, and I think he got to his 125 innings, even though he had an injury spell. Uh, he's still a free agent. I don't expect the White Sox to bring Mike Clevenger back. But, yeah, like Eric Fetty... I'm excited now. Like this gives me a reason to get hyped up to see if he can meet what the uh, computers are thinking because the range from the 1% to 99% ceases 99 percentile projection is better than Fetty's, mm-hmm. but there is a possibility out of the thousand simulations that both cease and Fetty are three war players, according to baseball savant. And that puts them in the top 25 pitchers in major league baseball. That would be something if if that actually occurred that despite all this instability and uncertainty with the White Sox pitching staff, if they had two top 25 pitchers in 2024, uh, yeah, well, I don't even think Cease gets to the end of the season with the White Sox, then uh, they're cashing in at the trade deadline. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, looking at the rest of them, just like it really drops off after uh, cease like yeah just like it, it becomes oh, it you get into the injury case like Mike Soroka who his projections are still good but that's because like the bulk of his career still came in 2019 because of all the injuries and he's number three so like yeah just it's hard to find anything to bank on afterwards so like part of me thinks like they're basically kind of one pitcher away from like flipping the rotation from being pretty bad to not bad uh, but then you have the entire position side to deal with and that's you know I think you can kind of compartmentalize how you look at the White Sox next year and be like, oh, the pitching won't necessarily won't be bad. Except, oh yeah, they have no bullpen anymore uh, because uh, you know they they traded everybody who was reliable to get outs, and now you have a whole bunch of mystery there. So yeah, just it becomes pretty apparent. Like whenever you step back from a conversation about like one specific uh, area of the depth chart not being as bad as you might think, then there are others like, yeah, it's still pretty bad. No matter what, like, like when it comes to the position player side, like the middle infield is pretty, uh, you know, you can see the White Sox are going for defense first with Lopez and DeYoung. Uh, like Max Stassi, like his projection was pretty nice for a catcher, especially a catcher being paid the league minimum. But like, then you look at like, yeah, it's, that's a pretty good turnaround. They get something like, you know, Stassi's projections for what they're paying. And then you realize, well, they've given up on the middle infield and probably right field as well. So that's only going to go so far. I mean, looking at the free agent projections, Marcus Stroman, Lucas Giolito, their 50th percentile projection is two war. So like to your point, if the White Sox decided to turn around and be like, hold on, if no one's going to try in this division, if we're going to try to match Detroit in this arms race, which is not that much of an arms race, but if they were to bring in like Stroman or Giolito, at least on paper, now you got three top 50 pitchers coming into 2024. Do you give yourself 
I don't know, the first half to decide where you are at before the trade deadline, then just do what you did last year with Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams and sell off Dylan Cease and uh, maybe other relievers, but obviously Cease would be the big get of the trade deadline. I, man, I this is the great thing and the terrible thing about projections. You can look at them and you can sell yourself. Oh, you know what? These guys are still free agents. If they go sign these guys, maybe they could turn around their at least preseason outcome and maybe give it a shot. You know, give it 60 games to see where they're at and then watch to be like 15 and 45. <laughs> After the first yeah. 60 games, like, well, that was stupid, Josh. Why did they even bother doing that? Yeah, but uh, out of the top 100 pitchers, uh, the Minnesota Twins have the most six pitchers in the top 100 in the 50th percentile projection, followed by the Rangers, the Giants, Marlins, Dodgers, Angels, and Red Sox with five pitchers. I'm expecting Pagoda to really like the Dodgers and Rangers still. I, I'm curious to see what Dakota's projection is for the Minnesota Twins record in 2024. It might be higher than I was expecting. Like right now, I'm kind of thinking like 83 and 79 for the Minnesota Twins. And I, I'd be wondering if it's like 88, 89 wins from Dakota when they do release the uh, standings projections for the upcoming season. That's again, another thousand season simulation, what the most common record is for Major League Baseball teams. But, yeah, to your point, Jim, Soroka, Tucson, very limited ceilings. And then there's Michael Kopech. Michael Kopech's range of projection, his 99th percentile is one and a half war, which is not bad. It's not top 100. His 1% negative 1.1 war. And, man, I... We, we talked about how pivotal this season is for like Yohan Makata and Eloy Jimenez moving forward. I'm still not sold that Michael Kopech should be a starting pitcher in 2024, Jim. I almost feel like it'd be better for all parties involved if they just moved him permanently to the bullpen. But if they're going to give him one last shot as a starting pitcher, this might be it. Like this might be it for Kopech for any team in Major League Baseball to give him a shot as a starter again is in 2024. Especially with Brian Bannister in tow. I think that's true. Like if it were Ethan Katz and only Ethan Katz really in charge of pitching development and fine tuning guys and making tweaks. Like then I could see like another team saying like, yeah, Katz just didn't figure it out. Like we can figure it out. Not that Katz is necessarily a bad pitching coach, but you know, we've, see it all the time when it comes to just, you know, some coaches not lining up with the talent and unlocking with another organization. But now that Bannister's there and if Bannister does, you know, he is empowered to make uh, changes and suggestions and have some input on players being acquired and players being retained and maybe the roles they occupy, then yeah, it is a, it is a big year. And I think the way his year ended with just how non-competitive he was, uh, you know, and, and how like even like when he went to the bullpen, his stuff didn't tick up. It was kind of ordinary fastball, like 93 versus like 96, 97 and looking pretty flat and getting smoked uh, when he was actually in the strike zone at all. Um, that was an extremely you know sour note to end on. And so like that does, I think, color my perception of just like how he can get back because maybe it was just a case of, you know, him feeling off and still dealing with like 
residual knee issues and the White Sox not handling that well and everything being a mess and just you know succumbing to the organization-wide rot that I think uh, you know claimed so many victims over the course of the year to where like yeah you know, like 2024 might be a reset especially if there's somebody else in his ear now saying like yeah here's what you're doing wrong here's what you got you know we're going to you know pay closer attention to knee to make sure like that's not affecting you as much rather than just kind of gutting through it for a second consecutive year. Uh, because yeah, the White Sox do need to pursue upside here, whether it's in the rotation or bullpen, because, you know, talking again about like, you know, who's going to be around for the next good White Sox team. Like if Kopex, if he clicks as a reliever and becomes like somebody teams might want to add, you ask what the price is and really don't think twice about it. Yeah, that's true. So those are the Pakoda projections. Again, we're waiting to see what the Zips projections are and what other projection models are. It's projection season upcoming. Uh, Pakoda was first with baseball prospectus. Yeah, and, and one thing to note about Pakoda too, because I'm not sure if we did that, is that like these playing time projections are really rough cuts because they haven't really factored in the depth charts yet. There are so many players unsigned. Uh, so many you know uh, questions about rosters yet to resolve that they just took very... Uh, general estimates of what a player might do for a team and then then set up the uh you know counting stats based on that so i think the rate stats like slash lines era and such strikeout rates walk rates are the more important thing and then when it comes to the games of musical chairs at each position each team uh being settled that you'll see like the actual other numbers you know counting stats fall in the line Hey, you know what? I'm going to take Luis Roberts' 99th percentile projection of 49 homers and 120 RBIs, Jim. <laughs> Not even 50? Come on. <laughs> no one's allowed to get to 50 homers in the White Sox organization. If Albert Bell couldn't do it, oh, man, what a story that came out to be. Uh, good old Jerry Reinsdorf. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. We'll save that story for a later time. But... As we head into the weekend, it's obviously Christmas weekend. So for those that do celebrate, we all wish you a Merry Christmas. And for everyone else, have a happy holiday and some time off. I hope you get it as we'll take a little break here on the Sox Machine Podcast. We'll be back next week. So again, enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the holidays with your friends and family. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts such as Spotify and Apple Music. We also upload our podcast episodes into our YouTube channel, which you can watch at youtube.com slash Machine. If you do Watch our videos on youtube.com slash Sox Machine. Please hit the subscribe button. We greatly appreciate it. You can follow us on social media. We're on all the platforms at Sox Machine. You can follow me there at Sox Machine underscore Josh. If you enjoy our work and you want more, you can get more by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. We just had our Veterans Committee meeting this week where we meet with, they serve as like our de facto board of directors. There are some business things that Jim and I need to discuss and get some feedback on and we do cherish their feedback and their opinions and they help shape on how socks machine is ran we do some we do still have some spots available in the veterans committee so if you would like to apply for that you could do so at patreon.com slash socks machine where not only do you get exclusive content and ad free version of the podcast and website but you also have direct access to jim and i you get free admission to all the events that we have including the curling events which we have 11 spots available jim for people to sign up 
I believe so. Yes. So again, that's for all of our Patreon supporters. You can sign up again at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.